Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. I have been a pastor for a minute or two now, and, and here's something that I can tell you from experience. In uncertain times, God has a tendency to get our undivided attention. In fact, it may be true of you that it was in an illness, or it was in a job loss, or it was through marital problems that you really began to pray for the first time, or that maybe God called you back into prayer. You know, you, you returned to prayer after you used to do that, and you got away from it, and then you went through something, and you're like, no, I need to pray. That's just the, 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 the case. You know, there's something about uncertainty that causes us to look up instead of looking around. And I'll bet if I asked you right now, and if you were honest how many of you went through a difficult time in your life where God either got your attention or regained your attention? I'll bet the number would be fairly significant when you went through something hard. You would say, God, God definitely had my attention. On January 15, 2009, <clears throat> U.S. Airways jet flight 1549 encountered difficulty in the skies, and the plane was in peril, and uh, a movie's been made about this, Captain Sully, who brilliantly landed that plane in the Hudson River and did not lose a single soul. It's amazing. And they convened, a, they were at a convention, they had convened the, the, the staff on that plane, the captain, the co-captain, the, the, the flight attendants, they were at a convention or something and they were, they were remembering and people were asking questions and... <clears throat> They were talking to a flight attendant, and they said, we don't, we're not really concerned about what happened in the cockpit. Let's leave that alone for a minute. What was going on in the cabin when they discovered and realized, hey, there's something wrong here. This plane is not acting right, and everybody began to understand that the plane was in peril. What, what was going on inside the cabin? And the flight attendant said, well, you know, it was really quiet, and I could tell that most people were praying. I bet they were. Of course they were. That's what you do when your plane encounters peril. And then she said that she too was praying. And you know what? They didn't, I understand that, that sometimes when, when there's a plane in the sky and they encounter trouble, I, I understand that the, the, co the captain will come on and say, uh, this is your captain speaking, um, you know, we have encountered some difficulty, and it is my duty to inform you that if you are a person of prayer, you can commence prayer now. I don't think they needed anybody to tell them that. I, I think when you're in, you're, you know, however, I, I don't think these guys were super high in the air, but they're in the air, so that's, but when you're really high in the air, 25,000 feet, and somebody comes on and says, hey, the plane's in trouble, nobody needs to tell you to pray. You're, you're going to figure that out on your own. And certainly that's what was going on on that flight. People who hadn't prayed in a long time started praying to whomever or whatever. They weren't really sure. In a situation like that, you're just going to pray. If you have much experience flying at all, you, you identify with this. It is amazing how you can be going through. The, you ever been on a plane and, and seen lightning or, or, or heard thunder or known that you were in the middle of bad weather? Dee Dee and I were coming back from Florida one time, and 
the weather was not great, and we're trying to land in Indianapolis, and he said, we're going to have to circle a couple of times. Well, that's never good. And that thing was just, it just felt like it was just going like that the whole time. And I don't normally get motion sickness, but I started, it was feeling kind of queasy, and thank God they've got those little bitty jet stream fans over top of your head. I was just, I was just dancing underneath that thing, just like, please, I do not want to throw up in front of all these people. It's amazing how focused you get. (laughs) You you are not thinking about any, it's amazing how spiritual you become in those moments. You are a person of prayer. You're not worried about the contractor that hadn't called you back. You're not worried about the mechanic that, you know, what's going on with the car. You're You're not worried about what the cat might have eaten while you were gone. You're not worried about any of those things. The only thing that's on your mind, in those moments you are un temptable by sin (laughs) the devil could come along and say hey why don't we try to do this and you'd say not now devil can't you see i got something going on here i can't focus on you you're not mad at anybody you love everybody you're confessing your sin you're confessing things that you did a long long time ago you're confessing things you've thought about doing but you didn't do god i was going to do it but i didn't and i'm so glad i didn't When life is spinning out of control, the natural tendency for most of us is to move in the direction of God. And it is for this reason that God is able to get so much more accomplished in the turbulence of our life than in times when things are pretty smooth, when the pavement is really smooth. God gets way more done in our life I think personally, I think nationally, I think internationally, I think God gets a whole lot more done when things are a little dicey. I keep telling you this, but it's just true. We don't learn anything in our life when things are going well. We're not focused on learning anything. You learn the most about yourself. You learn the most about God. You learn the most about life when you go through difficulty and uncertainty and things aren't exactly all put together. God has our undivided attention. I think about a time when, uh, you know, things weren't going great and what God taught me. If you think about a time in your life, maybe when you've drifted from God, you, you realize that it probably happened when things were going the way you wanted them to go. People don't typically drift away from God when things are bad. People drift away from God when things are going great. And they're not focused on God. They're focused on all the great things. See, when things are bad, you know, even when you're questioning God, at least you're focused on him. At least he's got your attention. At least you've turned in and tuned in to what's going on with him. And that's why this book is more relevant now than it's ever been in his life. And, and, you know, some of you might be like, okay, I need to blow off the dust and get in here and read this. And Oh, there's maps in here. I didn't know that this thing had maps. My Bible's got maps in it. And for some of you, it might have been a long, long time since you've read this. And the reason this book is so relevant, and if you're here and you're not a Christian or you're not really a a God-type person, and you say, Brett, do we have people like that in here? Yes, yes. And we, by the way, I love it that you're here. Just love it that you're here. But maybe your whole view of this book might have been determined for you when you were 
in some class somewhere and a professor got up and basically said this was nothing but a bunch of myths and something that couldn't be trusted and, and it's really just literature and nothing more than that. If that happened to you, this is the time to come back and take a second look. Because all of this was written and all the stories contained in here happened in times of uncertainty. This is a record of God's faithfulness in uncertain times. You, you, your favorite Bible story, that story that you love to have repeated, the one that you know the best, that story of conflict, it, it's a story of, oh no, what's going to ha happen? What is God going to do? What's going to happen if God doesn't show up? This is a record of people who found God and identified God in the midst of uncertain times. This is a record of what our God does. And if ever there's been a time in our life where we needed to know that, it's now. Sometimes we're tempted to ask, is God still active? I mean, does he still interact in the affairs of men? Does God intervene? Is he out there at all? And as we come to the scriptures, we're reminded that what we're experiencing right now from a biblical perspective is normal. It's normal. Consequently, we have nothing to fear because God hasn't changed. We change. We go through periods. We, you know, we, we're, circumstances do weird things to us. God never changes. And if the Bible is to be believed, then what we learn is that God is an expert at taking care of his people in uncertain times. You see this in Scripture over and over and over again. Last week we put a verse on the screen, and I want to look at it again today. This sets up kind of where we're going today. This is Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, can I find a job? Can I get into the right school? Can I sell my house? What happens when we move? Is my daughter okay? Are my kids all right? And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So the scripture teaches, and many of us has discovered in the past, that God is always at work. And he gets more done in our life in uncertain times. But here's what we're pursuing today. What are we supposed to do in the meantime? What are we supposed to do while we wait for God to do something and answer our prayer? What are we supposed to do when the uncertainty becomes more and more uncertain? What are we supposed to do when we're praying for clarity and things get muddier? What are we supposed to do when we, we long for that, that you know, assurance and we're, everything's just less certain? What are, we, what are we supposed to do when the bank account gets lower and lower and fewer people are calling us back? What are we supposed to do as we get lonelier and lonelier? What are we supposed to do when it just seems to be going in the wrong direction of everything that we're praying? And it seems like God is just not answering our prayers. What are we supposed to do in the meantime? great news is this, there is a very specific answer, and the answer is Philippians 4. If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to turn to Philippians 4. Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. In 2019, I did a series called Under Pressure, and that series is all about the church at Philippi. If you wanted to ever do a deep dive and, and understand what's going on with the people at Philippi and why did Paul write some of what he wrote, that, that was a, I thought that, that we handled all that very well in that series. 
And I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. As I said, Paul wrote these verses, and I need to tell you about Paul because it's who wrote these verses that make these verses believable. In fact, if I just got up here and I told you what Philippians 4 says with no context, you wouldn't take it seriously. You would say, that guy doesn't know anything about me. He hadn't been through what I've been through. If that guy had been through half what I've been through, maybe he could say something, but that dude doesn't know anything about me. The world had knocked him around enough or else he wouldn't have said something like that. Oh, contrary mi amigo, he, he's been through some stuff. But it is the Apostle Paul's life that gives these verses credibility. Paul left Jerusalem after Jesus had ascended to be with God. He, he's converted by an experience that he has with Jesus. He, he starts starting all these churches all over Europe. Now you can imagine a Jewish man going into Hellenistic, Greek, Roman society and culture all around Europe and basically saying, hey, I'd like you to listen to something that I'm going to say and I'd like you to believe something that you're going to find really hard to believe. And I'm going to start a new belief system. I want you to abandon everything that you've ever believed about God. Um, you know, I want to tell you what you should think about God and oh yeah, my name is Paul and you've never heard of me. I'm a Jewish guy from Jerusalem. Follow me. How Christianity ever made it out of the first century is really kind of a miracle when you think about it. How, did, how in the world did it even survive? It's just, it's crazy. But somehow, Paul was able to convince people that Jesus was the Messiah and the Savior, not just Jewish people, but he was able to do that in Europe, in places where, you know, they, they'd never heard anything. And Paul started these little churches in what we would now consider Europe. One of the churches that he started was in this little town of Philippi. And eventually Paul ends up back in Jerusalem, even though they'd warned him not to go there because they just said, hey, you're gonna, it's going to be trouble if you come back to Jerusalem. Don't do it. And Paul went straight to Jerusalem. They wanted to stop him because they thought that he was corrupting Judaism. They thought that the way he was teaching was a threat to Judaism. He was telling non-Jewish people, hey, you can worship the Jewish God, and the Jewish God will love you, but you don't have to become Jewish. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to keep the Jewish law. You don't have to eat all the right things. God sent his son to cover all of that stuff. If you will just accept him as Messiah, you're in. This infuriated the Jewish leaders. They hated it. And they felt like he was corrupting, and some of them felt like he was hijacking Judaism. And so Paul's gone back to Jerusalem. He goes into the temple. Some of the Jewish leaders make Paul. They recognize him, and, and trouble starts. And the next thing you know, there's this mob, and they're kind of beating up on Paul. And um, they, they call the police, which is another way to say they call the Roman centurions and the Roman guards over, and they basically pull these guys off of Paul they arrest him pretty much to partly to save his life they take him into custody and these same leaders trump up these charges on paul and they say hey this guy's a criminal this guy's bad news he offends god well paul is in all of this controversy and as they're dragging him around he casually mentions oh by the way i'm a roman citizen to which that's a game changer everything changed when paul said that it was like you know, hit the brakes. What did you say? Yeah, I'm a Roman citizen. Oh, 
See, now we're going to treat you differently. Now you've got rights that you didn't have before. We, we have to be very careful with Roman citizens. And so they, they decide that they're going to send Paul to Rome to stand trial for these religious charges, really, that had nothing to do with the Roman government. But they're just trying to keep the peace in Palestine. So now Paul is under house arrest. They've put him on a ship to go to Rome. While he's on this ship, a storm blows up and blows them out into the middle of the sea. And they're out there for two weeks, just completely lost, languishing. You know, can you imagine? It'd be bad enough to be on a ship in that time anyway, but can you imagine being Paul? You're in the bottom of this boat. You're chained to these guards. You have no idea where you are. You're just sitting there. It would just be awful. Eventually, the boat washes ashore. They're shipwrecked for three months, and Paul is chained to these guards for three months. They finally get to Rome. Paul is imprisoned in a home, and it took two or three years for that trial to come about. And this whole time, he's in prison. But while Paul is in prison, he begins to write letters to all these churches that he started. So the letter that we're about to read, Philippians, is one of the letters that Paul wrote while he is in prison, awaiting trial. Now here's why this is important. What he's about to say seems extremely impractical. But you can't really argue with the source because whatever your difficulty right now, I can promise you, you would not want to get up here and tell your story to everybody right before Paul got up and told his story. As sad as your story may be and as much stuff as you might be able to pack into your story, Paul would get up and tell you his story and when, you got, when he got done, you would just hang your head like, I, I'm so ashamed I even got up there. Because Paul had been stoned, he'd been whipped, he'd been scourged. I've talked about scourging. It was awful. He, he didn't get scourged just one time for Jesus. He got scourged three times. Listen, if I was preaching about Jesus and they scourged me and they said, shut up, I'm not sure I would do that anymore. But Paul did. He'd been shipwrecked, he was snake bit, stoned and left for dead. They were awful to him. And now he's in Rome awaiting trial, and he knows that it is highly possible, if not probable, that they're going to kill him. And then one day, maybe two or three years after he gets to Rome, he hears a knock on the door of the place where he's being held in house arrest, and they say, Paul, come on, we're going to go take a walk. And they walk him two or three or four miles out of the city, and they put him down on his knees, and they behead him. And that was the end of the Apostle Paul. In the meantime, he's written this letter to the Philippian church, and this is what he had to say about uncertainty. Specifically, this is how Paul instructs us to pray during times of uncertainty. Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, to which we want to reply, (laughs) Paul obviously has no clue what's going on in my life to say that. Now, if he had just said rejoice always, we would say, well, Paul, you know, it's 2,000 years later, you clearly don't know what's going on around us because you would not say that if you knew. But he adds these three little words. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Let me help you understand the significance of those three little words, in the Lord. Let's take in the Lord out and let's put something else in its place. Rejoice in your new job. Rejoice in the fact that he called you back. Rejoice in the fact that you had your new baby. 
Rejoice in the fact that you got a new car. See, we know what it is to rejoice in those things. Those are fun things. Those are good circumstances. We rejoice when that kind of stuff happens. All of us know what it means to rejoice in something. It's to focus on that good news to the point that the emotion associated with that good news begins to just kind of wash all over us. And people say, what are you so happy about? And we say, I made the team. I'm in love. We're pregnant. We got the house. I was able to afford a two-by-four at Menards. You know, whatever. You know, We know what that means. Paul says, listen, I want you to spend whatever time is necessary to capture the emotion associated with the existence of God's mercy and grace in your life. I want you to stop and I want you to focus on God so much that you actually begin to feel the emotions associated with such great news that God loves me and has forgiven me. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Now let me explain this to you as an American The reason Americans don't rejoice in the Lord is, as Americans, we have so much other stuff that we can rejoice in. We've got it pretty good. Dates, vacations, cars, homes, babies, businesses, success stories, marriages. But as things get harder and harder, and there are fewer and fewer things and circumstances to rejoice about, Paul says, well, maybe it's time to reel some of that in and to refocus your joy on what it probably should have been on in the first place and what it should have been about a long time ago. I want you to pause and discipline yourself and be intentional about learning to rejoice in God's goodness in your life. This is why we sing on Sunday morning. Some of us sing. Some of you come in here and listen to the rest of us sing. Some of you, your, your wife looked at you before you walked in and they said, don't sing. You know, we sing, you, 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 you're not a singer, don't sing. To which I would say, no, sing. We, I like it when you sing. I think God likes it when you sing. God loves it when you sing. Make a joyful noise. The reason we sing is, is, is because the words remind us. You see, music, music is an emotional thing. Our singing is an emotional expression of God's goodness to us. It's why we clap and praise when we see these baptism videos, and we're just rejoicing. It's just, Paul says, look, okay, even though I'm in prison, even though things aren't going well for me, and, and even when things aren't going well for you, I want you to rejoice in the Lord. And then we come to verse five. Let your gentleness or your character or your kindness Be evident to all. Implication, don't let hard times begin to erode your integrity and your character. Don't let your fuse get so small that you begin to destroy the relationships with the people around you, and that's what happens sometimes. If you've ever had a spouse that was going through something really hard, and they just kind of turn into a different person because they're, they're, their character starts to erode. They forget, you know, being kind. They forget the simple relational things. And, and, you know, for a season, they just kind of turn into somebody else. Paul says, yes, your circumstances are tough, but if your joy is only associated with the good times and the good circumstances in your life, then as those circumstances erode, your character is going to erode. Your integrity is going to erode. 
Your kindness is going to erode. And you will become short-tempered. And you'll become difficult to live with. And people will wonder, what is happening to them? Paul says your character is what God has done on the inside of you. Don't allow circumstances that you uh, can't control to begin to control the way you treat other people. He says, let your gentleness be evident to all. In spite of your circumstances, there should be something unique about the way you treat other people, no matter what the circumstances. God would say, listen, you always be good to people. And don't let your circumstances cause you to behave in such a way that you're, you're awful or hateful to other people. For most of us, our kindness is a result of our circumstances. If you're kind to me, I'm going to be kind to you. If you're not kind to me, I'm not going to be very kind to you. And we will use that as an excuse sometimes to be unkind to the people around us. Paul says, look, come on, don't, don't allow something over which you have no control in your circumstances to take control of your character, which is to be a reflection of God's grace inside of you. Let your gentleness be evident to all the Lord is near. And here's where you, you have to remember who's writing this because not just anybody can say this next thing, but Paul can. Paul can say it. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. Another way to say that is do not be anxious about anything. And let's just be honest. <laughs> That's not helpful for us, is it? <laughs> in fact, you hate it. If you've got a roommate in college, or if, you've got a, like a, if you're married and your spouse looks at you and says, don't worry about it. Don't worry about that. What do you, what do you, don't worry about that. That's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. You just want to choke them out, don't you? Like, mm, you don't know what I'm going through. Don't say that to me, it's condescending. You don't look at him and go, I hadn't thought about that. I just, just quit worrying about it. Well, why didn't you say so? It's not what you're saying. No, what we think is the reason you say don't worry about it is because it's not your problem. You're not going through it. And if you were me, you would be worried about it. It's easy for you to say. So Paul says, don't worry, don't be anxious about anything, but he's smart enough to know that he can't leave it there. And the next two verses gives us the secret to handling difficult times without allowing the difficult times to control us. In these next few verses, he gives us a solution for what to do during times of extraordinary anxiety. What do you do when times are so unpredictable and times are so uncertain that we just kind of go inside and we allow our character to erode and we're just worried all the time. What do you do? Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, <clears throat> marriage situation, job situation, roommate situation in college, school. He says, what I'm about to share with you can be applied in every single situation, and here's what I'd like you to do. I want you to replace your anxiety. Every time you're worried, every time you're overwhelmed, every time you, you go under because of the circumstances, here's what I want you to do instead. Don't worry about it, but instead do this. And today on the way home, or this afternoon, or 
tomorrow morning, in those moments of anxiety, when it starts to creep in on you and kind of settle in on you, in those moments, here's what God would have us do instead of worry. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now, if you just listen to me read that, and you read that, and basically what you take away is, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything pray, then you missed it. You missed it, because there's more to it. We usually just read that, and we blow through it. I've done it. I've blown through that, and we're so disgusted, and we want to say, Paul, what do you think I've been doing? I've done nothing but pray about this. That's all I do is pray about this. But I want us to look at this verse again. I'm going to break it down for us a little better. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer. He doesn't stop there. And petition. You say, Brett, that's the same thing as prayer. Well, it is, but it isn't. But he's going somewhere. With thanksgiving. We all know what that means. But then he's going to use a word that is not a prayer word. He's going to use a word, present, which literally means reveal in Greek. When you, if you were to look that up, that word means reveal. Present your requests to God. It's a Greek word that usually is used in the context of solving a mystery, like it's been revealed. Oh, that solves the mystery. Paul's saying, look, I... I I don't want you to just pray like, God, please help her to call me back, and God, you know I'm lonely. That's fine. You can start there. But Paul's saying, I want you to spend some time and reveal to God what it is that you really, really, at your deepest core, is your deepest desire. What is that? See, on the surface, you may desire a job, but what do you really desire? On the surface, I need to sell this house. Oh, God, help us to sell this house. No, what's really going on there? What do you, what's your really, really deep? You want to sell the house, but there's something under that. What's, what's the deepest, deepest desire of that? What's driving that request? Don't just tell God what you want. That's a good place to start. But what is it that you really want? Paul says, listen, I want you to reveal to God your, the deepest, deepest desires of your heart. That is the solution. That is the proper response in times of anxiety. You see, times of, of uncertainty surface our deepest insecurities. Times of uncertainty loosen and bring to the surface our greatest fears. Very few of us pray at the level of security, of, of uh, insecurity and fear. Most of us pray at the level of, uh, God, here's what I want, and and here's what I need, and in Jesus' name, amen. And by the way, it's Thursday, and when are you going to do this? And by the way, help me find my car keys, amen. And by the way, um, bless the missionaries, amen, right? And if you're Larry, Larry the Cable Guy, he adds to that, and bless the pygmies, all the pygmies in New Guinea, which I love when he does that. Paul's saying, listen, you can pray that way if you want to, but that's not going to help you with your anxiety. That's, that's really not, now that the earth is shaking beneath your feet, now that you're having doubts that you've never had before, I want you to come to God, I want you to get on your face, and I want you to say, God, here's what I want, and, he, and here's why I want it, and here's what I fear is going to happen, and God, this is my heart's desire. This is what scares me. 
This is what's driving all this stuff that I'm asking you about. God, at its core, this is the problem I'm having. This is, these are my fears. Paul says, I want you to pray and petition, but I want you to reveal to God something that you may have never revealed to God before. Now, I keep telling you this whenever we talk about prayer, but I can't stress this enough. Does God really need you to reveal that to him? No. He needs you to reveal it to him so that you will reveal it to you. So that you can listen and you can hear it and you can say, oh my goodness. I did not realize until just now that's what's scaring me to death. That's really the problem. It's not selling the house. It's not the thing with the kids. It's not the job. That's, I thought that's what it was, but that's really not what it is. My deepest, deepest desire in this particular area is this, and I just now realized it as I revealed it to God. Uncertainty surfaces my deepest insecurities and hidden values. When I can move past, help me to find a job, help me to sell the house, when I can move past all that, what's behind all of those legitimate requests comes to the surface. My insecurity, my concern for my family, my need to feel important, my need to be viewed a certain way by my peers, my need to be viewed a certain way by my kids, my need to know that God knows my name. Whatever it is that, that we're insecure about or that we're afraid of or that we, we think, oh, I mean, that's really the problem. Paul says, look, I want you to dig that stuff up. I want you to come to God. I want you to spend time until you begin to understand your deepest, darkest, most bottom line, hidden desires, fears, and insecurities. And I want you to move past, help me to find my car keys, and help me to get a job. I want you to bring the stuff that is going to answer the question, why is that such a big deal to you? What's underneath all that? Now bring that to your heavenly Father. Then he goes into verse 7, and the peace of God, we're almost done, and the peace of God, not the circumstances, we've all had that. We've had the peace of circumstances. Everything went fine today. Everybody came home healthy. Kids got home from school easy. Everybody went to bed on time. Good day. We had a good day. Peaceful circumstances. I had peace. I had a great day today. I'm looking for a great day tomorrow. Things are going great at work. Marriage is going good. Kids are just behaving great. School's going good. You know, I have peace because of my circumstances. No, that's the peace of circumstances. Paul says the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Guard means to stand over. There's a Greek word there, and it basically paints the picture of a, <clears throat> of a centurion, of a soldier guarding the, the door of your heart, giving you peace. The reason we're so riddled with anxiety and worry is because we, we've never allowed God to stand guard over our heart and our mind. We keep sending God out to stand guard over my job and over my kids. And God says, listen, what if you allowed me and what if I taught you to allow me to stand guard over your heart? What if you could have peace in spite of the uncertainty? What if you could have peace in the midst of uncertainty? What if you learned to pray in such a way that at the end of your prayer you found peace 
What Paul's saying is in times of uncertainty, we're to pray until the peace comes. We pray, we stay on our face, and not until the world changes. The world may never change. Not until Paul gets out of prison. Paul may not, Paul is not going to get out of prison. You know, we don't pray until the kids are perfect and they're getting straight A's or go to the, get into the best schools. That may never happen. God says, are you willing to pray in such a way that it brings you face to face with your insecurities and your lack of faith to that place where you say, God, I guess I've never really trusted you. I guess I'm afraid. I guess I'm, a, I'm in a place of great insecurity. This is, this is a place that's just, I'm not secure, and I just want to confess that to you. And God says, okay, now we're praying. Now we're praying. And if you will allow me to take you there, you, you may come back the same as you were before, but you will have something that you did not have before. You will have the peace of God that surpasses all human understanding, which means Nobody understands it. Nobody gets it. They look at you and they go, are you in denial? And you say, no, no. They say, well, <laughs> have things changed? Did you sell the house? No, we haven't sold the house. In fact, things are worse. We had a flood in the basement last week. But how are you so calm? How are you, why aren't you worried about this? I'm okay. I've, I've prayed about it. God, you know, I've, I've, I've prayed till the peace came. I've laid it out to God what my deepest desires are. I understand what was driving all that. <laughs> but you're not okay because the world changed or the circumstances changed. You're okay because you changed. If you get this from C.S. Lewis, you understand prayer. C.S. Lewis said, I learned that prayer isn't about changing God. Prayer is about changing me. That's what happens in prayer. You're not praying to change God. We need to stop doing that. I'm going to change God's mind on this. I, God could understand. He, no, I, I pray and I listen to what I'm saying to God, not because he really needs to hear it. I need to hear it because I need to change. Oh, my goodness. I, that just came out of my mouth. That's what's important to me? That's what's important to me? God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's an insecurity, isn't it? That's a fear of mine. That's something, I, that's something I'm worried about I shouldn't be worried about at all. I hadn't realized it till just now as I was praying about it. You pray until the peace comes. Let me help you with this. Here's a place to start, and then we'll close. When you pray, I want you to just, this is the, the beginning of your prayer. Heavenly Father, I need you too, and whatever you would put in that blank is, you know, pertinent to your life. I need you too. That's where our prayer starts. Change my son, bring this, provide that. But the second part is where things begin to get interesting. You pray this. If you don't, I'm afraid that, fill in that blank. Father, I need you too, but if you don't, I'm afraid that, what are you afraid of? You say, Brett, I'm not afraid of anything. Yeah, you are. You're afraid to admit you're afraid of something. <laughs> we're, we're, we're afraid of stuff. Let me tell you where to begin. You begin with your greatest anxiety. You begin with that thing that you are most stressed out about. Heavenly Father, I need you to fill in the blank. And then, God, I'm afraid if you don't. And then you fill in that blank. And your fears, you're going to discover 
that your fears parallel your deepest desires. Peace is available for those men and women who will allow God to take them to that level of conversation and honesty with him. You are sitting among people who have learned how to do this. Some of you have learned how to do this. I, I was talking to a couple this morning. They have been through it. They, health-wise, I was talking to a man this morning. His body has been through so much, and he comes to church beaming. He's got the biggest smile on his face. He's got every reason in the world to be worried and upset and belly aching and whining and crying. And I said, you are a model. And he went, and his wife was like, would you shut up? Don't tell him stuff like that. I, I got to live with this guy. But honestly, he's got every reason in the world to be anxious. He's got every, I mean, he's, he's been through stuff you can't imagine. He's almost died a couple of times. He's just smiling. He's figured it out. He's prayed till the peace has come. He's the one I want to point to for everybody else and say, be like him. See, this isn't preacher talk. This isn't hocus pocus and it's not magic. This is God your Father inviting you to a new level of intimacy that you might never get to unless your world begins to fall apart. Here's the question. Have I made my deepest, deepest desires and hidden requests known to God? Have I really revealed to him? And really what that means is have I revealed it to me? And do I even really know what it is? When life is uncertain, God is not. He is sovereign. Until things change, in the meantime, we pray until the peace comes. <laughs> we pray until the peace comes. We, at every service, we have people down front that are here to pray for you. If you have come this morning with a need and you just want somebody to pray with you, you come forward. While the music's playing, they'll greet you and meet you and, and pray with you. Um, if you don't need that, that's fine. You're welcome to just go ahead and, after things are done, just leave and have a great week. But I want to pray with you, and then Shelby's going to come out and, and uh, lead us out. Father, I've, I've talked to enough people in my lifetime to know that prayer is one of those frustrating things because it's a, there's kind of there's a bit of an art form to it. There's a way to learn. There's a right way to pray. And it's, it's often more than just telling you what we want. It's, there's, we got to be honest with you. And, and in being honest with you, we hear ourselves and we're honest with ourselves. And Father, I pray that as we, we, we really go to this new level in prayer where we're just not giving you a list, but we're saying, God, if, if this doesn't happen, this is what I'm afraid of, now we're getting somewhere. Help us with that. Help us with that, because I think if we could ever get there, it takes us to a whole new level with you, and when we go to a whole new level with you, look out. And so, Father, there's some people that have walked in here probably frustrated, because they've been praying. They have been praying. But maybe they've not revealed. Maybe they haven't presented the way you talk about in Philippians. And so, Father, would you just surface those insecurities, those fears, help us to see those, help us to embrace them and admit that they're ours, and help us to move past that and to trust you no matter what. You are our God. We are your people. You're sovereign. You're in control. You know what's going on. Father, we are just together collectively on our face before you now, lifting you up, worshiping you, exalting you, 
praising you. You are magnificent and awesome and wonderful. And in these quiet moments, we just tell you that. We love you, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray.